Welcome to this podcast on legacies of political conflict. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the university's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm joined today by Dr Cheryl Lawther and Dr Peter Mudlochlin. Cheryl Lawther is Senior Lecturer in Law here at Queen's University, and her research interests are in the fields of transitional justice, truth recovery, victims, ex-combatants, reparations, emotion and conflict transformation. Her publications include the books Truth, Denial and Transition, Northern Ireland and the Contested Past, published in 2014, and the co-edited Research Handbook on Transitional Justice, published in 2017. Dr Lawther was recently awarded a Fulbright Irish Scholarship, which she will take up at Berkeley School of Law. Peter McLaughlin is a lecturer in politics and Associate Fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's. He specialises in ethnic conflict and peace building, with particular focus on the Northern Ireland problem and international dimensions to its resolution. He recently returned from Boston College, where a Fulbright scholarship allowed him to research the role of Irish America and the US government in both the Northern Ireland conflict and peace process. His book, John Hume and the Revision of Irish Nationalism, was published in 2010. Cheryl, I'm going to start by asking you about your work on contested pasts. Could you set out briefly for us the central argument of your pioneering book addressing that issue as it related to Northern Ireland, the book Truth, Denial and Transition? The Truth, Denial and Transition book really starts from the premise that a lot of the literature and attention on dealing with the past focuses on those places that have actually dealt with their past or where there have been truth and reconciliation commissions or similar type bodies. But what we really hadn't looked at are the places that haven't done truth recovery or and where the past remains contested. And there hadn't really been any scholarly interrogation of the objections um, from those who are most opposed to dealing with the past. And in the book, I argue that in Northern Ireland, those who are most opposed to dealing with the past, publicly at least anyway, are unionist political elites, members of the security forces and loyalist ex-combatants. But what we knew about their opposition to dealing with the past through something like a full-scale truth and reconciliation or truth recovery type body, what we knew about that opposition was very limited. It tended to be restricted to practical objections, that dealing with the past, for example, could be destabilising for local communities, or it might be too financially expensive, or it could be re-traumatising for individuals and communities. And of course, those are very valid concerns. I wouldn't wish to undermine them in any way. But in the book, I argue that if we really want to understand why there is such a deeply ingrained reluctance to re-engage with the past, we need to go further than this, to look at the, the political, the ideological and the sociological objections to truth recovery. And in truth denial and transition, I argue that that's tied up in a complex interplay of questions relating to identity, collective memory, how we understand victimhood, and themes such as loyalty, sacrifice and betrayal. And so 
what I would argue is that if we really want to understand objections to truth and in the context where there is a huge amount of discussion on dealing with the past and how best we could deal with the past, then it's those issues around identity and understandings of blame or the tension between loyalty and betrayal that we really need to be alive to and that we really need to work with. And research on this subject clearly has profoundly contentious aspects to it, as you suggest, and a very public-facing dimension beyond the library and the study. Can you say something about the challenges, but also about the opportunities of working on issues of such policy and public dispute, Cheryl? Sure. And I think in many ways, the opportunities and challenges are actually tied together. And I think one of the things that is both an opportunity and a challenge is the fact that Northern Ireland is a small place. And so in a small place, we have very easy or very good relationships with policymakers, practitioners, other people engaged in policy and practice. And Queen's as a university, particularly in relation to subjects such as history or politics or law, for example, has a really strong history of engaging with the local community and really good respected relationships with local organisations. So there is on one level an opportunity to um, really get involved at a community level and to make those connections and to actually work and maybe try to affect some modicum of change in the community that we live with. Um, but on the other hand, that requires, I would suggest, patience and tenacity. Um, the pace of, of politics in Northern Ireland is slow um, at its very best. And, but at the end of the day, what we're dealing with it are real lives and issues of need and victimisation. And what we've seen over the, the past, say, at least 11 years since the debate on establishing a formal truth process has been going, is we've seen a variety of initiatives be suggested. And each time the hopes and the expectations of victims and survivors get raised, and then it crumbles on politics, and those expectations are dashed. But all the while, uh, people are ageing, and their need for truth or for justice, or as is in the papers today and towards the end of May, the issue of a pension for those most seriously injured as a result of the conflict, people's needs increase with age as well. So I think there's patience and there's uh, tenacity involved in there. But also, you know, as we talked about in the previous question, there's huge political sensitivities around the past and around victimhood. And I find that because you are seen to maybe work with a particular group of people or maybe sit on a particular panel at a conference, for example, that can really easily colour people's assumptions of you and the assumptions that they make of your work, even though that might actually be quite different uh, from the truth. And so while that in itself is really interesting and the subject matter that you're working on might be really fascinating, you do need to develop a degree of tenacity to keep pushing at those doors and to establish your credentials across the board. Thank you very much. Peter, you've also worked on aspects of Northern Irish politics which carry very strong international resonances. You wrote a major book, which I mentioned on one of the main players in the Northern conflict, John Hume. What should international as well as more local audiences know that's most important about Hume's career and his politics? 
Thank you very much, Richard, and uh, thank you for for having us on the the podcast here today. Um, Hume, it's 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 hard to overstate how important he was. I mean, probably he would be most noted internationally for the highlight of the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, where he was jointly awarded the peace, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, along with David Trimble, the Unionist leader, uh, recognizing the the dual role in bringing the two sides, uh, nationalist and unionist communities, towards that peace agreement. But Hume's career actually stretches much, much further back. Um, his, he, he came to prominence in Northern Ireland primarily through the civil rights movement in the late 1960s. And as you mentioned there, that, that there was always an international dimension to his politics. He was profoundly influenced, as indeed that, that generation was, uh, by what had happened in the US with, with the African-American civil rights movement. And indeed saw how successful that was, by and large, those tactics being used by a minority population to force radical change, reform, and to gain a greater measure of equality. So that was really adopted, the philosophy and indeed specifically the tactics of what had happened in Northern Ireland by, by that generation that Hume represented in the 1960s, a, a younger generation of, of, of uh, Northern nationalists that were in some way less willing to accept uh, discrimination than the, the, their parents that they they had been to university become more educated more articulate and confident and they saw how successful these kind of tactics could be so Hume really came to prominence with that um, but then moved very quickly into a more formal political role um, like a, a number of other SDLP leaders uh, sorry uh, uh, civil rights leaders he, he founded the SDLP in 1970 which is is now very much the second or secondary nationalist party in Northern Ireland but at that for the whole of the troubles was the main party that was voted by the majority of nationalists and the Catholic population voted for uh, and uh, really more than any group its ideas are reflected in the Good Friday Agreement it's it's fair to say that the STLP from its foundation in 1970 from what people like Hume were saying then really the ideas then about power sharing and an Irish dimension, some kind of formal linkages with Southern Ireland to recognise Northern Nationalists' Irish identity, that was the only way to solve the problem. And that's really what we get in the Good Friday Agreement. Now, it takes uh, nearly 30 years on from the civil rights movement to get that, uh, but but the SDLP and John Hume were very consistent in what they were saying, that, that power sharing and an Irish dimension were really the essential ingredients for any, any reasonable solution. So where Hume was particularly important was in constantly articulating that idea and persuading others. Uh, now, I should say in that regard that, that where he was less successful is, is persuading unionists directly. In fact, partly because he was seen as being so influential in terms of winning over other uh, support from international actors like the US, like the US government, like the EU, influencing the Irish government's policies. For all those reasons, Hume was distrusted by, by unionists. Uh, he was seen to be the most articulate nationalist and was seen in a way his kind of uh, his language of reconciliation and what he referred to as an agreed Ireland rather than a united Ireland for unionists that was seen as just verbal camouflage for for, for a united Ireland this idea of an Irish dimension would be used to kind of lever unionists into a united Ireland so he, he, he never really won the trust of unionists so a balanced account needs to recognize that but he was still one of the most important figures in terms of persuading other actors to commit to to that essential formula, as I say, of, of, of uh, power sharing in an Irish dimension, which we see in the Good Friday Agreement today. And John Hume always argued for the effectiveness of non-violent political methods. You were talking there about tactical success. In your view, Peter, did the outcome so far of the Northern Ireland Troubles vindicate 
Hume's view that really the effectiveness of non-violent politics was the way forward in terms of thinking how nationalists and others should deal with political difference? A simple answer to that would be yes, overwhelmingly so, but but it's not straightforward in terms of this, the relative success of non-violence versus violence. Hume should be made clear was absolutely committed to, to non-violence as you say and again i refer to the civil rights movement in, in america martin luther king and also gandhi were, were key role models in terms of his thinking and his strategy even hume's first involvement in the civil rights movement formally in terms of organizing was not actually a march it was a sit-down uh, protest that it was a very conscious effort to do what had been done by by leaders like martin luther king to try and discipline a movement and to avoid violence that, that could get out of hand if you've got young people brought onto the streets, um, as we saw later on in the Northern Ireland conflict. So there was this very conscious effort to use this disciplined form of non-violent protest to try and win over international opinion. That was another key thing, that it was always very international in, in, in its approach to try and force change in public opinion, not simply in Northern Ireland, but in, in London, in Dublin, uh, in Irish America, crucially, and, and to, to gain European and, and generally international sympathy for this movement. So Hume and other leaders were very important in that. Uh, what Where it becomes more complex, though, is is obviously then the violence that, that came out of this, that when you have young people brought onto the streets and those who have much more radical ideas, very quickly, the civil rights movement uh, resulted and led to serious political violence, not least in the way that the, the state responded to it. And then that created uh, paramilitary uh, action on both sides of, of the divide. So violence really overtook events in the, in the 1970s and made it very hard to argue for what Hume and the SDLP were, which was reform and power sharing. There was a power sharing deal in the mid 1970s, the Sunningdale Agreement, but it very quickly collapsed because of lack of support, because of polarisation because of the polarising effects of violence because Republicans at that time refused to accept power sharing. They thought this was was a sellout and that it was accepting partition. And unionists who who, who saw power sharing in an Irish dimension as, as a, a step towards a united Ireland. So it was very hard for people like Hume and the SLP to make that argument that, that peaceful reformist tactics were the way forward. Where Hume, and it was very crucially Hume, other SDLP leaders were very important, but Hume really made this decision as the SDLP leader in the 1980s, where he was very important in, in ending that cycle, was that he was the first major leader to publicly speak to Republicans and to try and persuade them of the counterproductive nature of their violence, that he actually agreed to formal talks with Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, and to try and persuade them that violence was counterproductive, that if your goal was to unite Ireland... One of the constant things that that Hume argued and that I stress in my in my book is that he was trying to stress this idea that the problem of partition, the division of Ireland, was actually a division of people over territory. It wasn't a line on a map, as he always famously said. It was actually a division within people's hearts and their mindsets, the way they, they, they perceived each other. And you had to overcome that. And the only way you could do that was by peaceful persuasion. Violence could only be counterproductive. And indeed, Hume would, would constantly try to persuade Republicans that violence against the British state, well, well, the British state wasn't the obstacle to United Ireland. The, the, the unionist community and its distrust of any agreement with nationalists was, was the reason you couldn't have a United Ireland or any, anything short of that, any kind of agreement that would improve the position of the nationalist community. So Hume was very, very important in persuading Republicans, along with other factors, there's, there's a broader context to this book, was very important in persuading Republicans to join a process that led to the, the peace process, that led to ceasefires, and eventually to the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement. So while he might not have always been successful in persuading unionists, he was very important in, in, in persuading other actors, Republicans, 
and as I've said before, the Irish and, and to an extent the British government and, and international actors like the US government to support his 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 mode of trying to resolve the, the, the situation. So he he helped create a context in which the peace process could take place, even if Eunice didn't fully uh, uh, trust his intentions at, at every time. Thank you very much. As I mentioned, both Dr. Lawther and Dr. McLaughlin have had impressive success with Fulbright scholarships, allowing them to spend time working in the USA. And I want now to move on to ask them both about the geography of scholarship in the areas in which they're expert. Cheryl, I'm going to start with you. Could you say something about the ways in which the legal academic debate on contested pasts differs in the US from the debates here in the UK and Ireland, or are the contours broadly recognisably similar? Yeah, I think there's probably two or three different elements to that. Um, one of the really interesting things in kind of traditional justice scholarship or scholarship that looks at dealing with contested pasts is the fact that transitional justice originally kind of arose as a discipline in response to authoritarian regimes and dictatorships. And the language and the practices of transitional justice, be that in respect to truth recovery or commemoration, memorialization, or acknowledgement and apologies, is increasingly becoming mainstreamed in domestic contexts. And I think the US is one of the places where you can see that quite clearly, in that there has been a number of very obviously transitional justice grounded initiatives, um, but which are actually dealing with domestic issues. So like the Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine, um, so what you see, I think, in the US is using the tools of transitional justice or the kind of approaches to deal with a contested past in a domestic context as opposed to a transitional context. And I think in part that also uh, leads to perhaps a, a broader conversation around dealing with a contested past, because if you think of the issue of the past in the British or the Irish or the Northern Ireland Irish context, that is solely circumscribed by the boundaries of the Northern Ireland conflict. But when you look at contested issues in the US, you're looking at slavery or the history of race relations or migration or reparations for indigenous people. And so the conversation itself is much broader, but also the responses to dealing with that past are much broader as well. So while we are in Northern Ireland, we are still regardless of the utility or the likelihood of this approach, we're still quite wedded to a criminal justice approach to the past and the, and the need for criminal prosecutions. Uh, what you see in the US in respect to much more kind of localised issues, um, like in Greensboro or Maine, for example, it's around different forms of dealing with the past. So it might be about reparations or getting apologies, establishing some form of memorial or other form of commemoration or localised community-based truth recovery initiatives. All the kind of stuff that's been mooted here but hasn't really taken root and it always effectively comes secondary to this attachment to a criminal justice approach to the past. The other way that you could um, look at this, and I suppose for me personally, uh, going to the US and having the opportunity to spend time in Berkeley is to step out of the Northern Ireland context and have the opportunity to learn from scholars who have worked on issues of victimhood and contested pasts in a range of different jurisdictions. So be that in El Salvador, in, in Sierra Leone, um, or for example, in respect to 
the kind of the unsolved questions around torture that arose out of the war on terror. There's a real opportunity there, I think, to um, really expand our horizons by going to the US and learn from people who have worked with different types of harm and different types of victimization uh, and see how and where that can be applied here in Northern Ireland. And Peter, you're working currently on the role of Irish America and the US government in relation to the conflict and the peace process in Northern Ireland. Was it essential to do some of that work in the US itself? And to what extent are the contours of debate on the North different, say, in Boston as opposed to Belfast? Uh, simply put, it was essential, yes, it, and, and I was greatly privileged to, to, to be able to study in America and to visit the, the, a great number of presidential libraries uh, right across America, the Reagan Archive on the West Coast, uh, and a whole series of different presidential archives looking at how the different administrations uh, were gradually involved in, in the, the Northern Ireland situation. And most importantly, where I was based in Boston, at, at, a, at Boston College, I was very grateful to, to be hosted there, uh, where Tip O'Neill, the, the House Speaker, uh, probably the most uh, senior and influential Irish-American politician of his generation in the 70s and 80s held that important role and his papers as, as a, a, a graduate of Boston College are all held there so I'm very grateful to, to, to colleagues at the Burns Library and to all of the libraries across America that helped me in, in researching the project but in, in relation to the second part of your question I think it's also important to stress that, that, that living in a different place or, or seeing, studying uh, a, a different uh, issue actually living there is very important as well it's not just the work you do in archives and I'll give an example of how for me living in Boston you've got to understand the complexity and the very different nature of, of diaspora nationalism of how Irish American nationalism was crucially very very different in subtle ways um, to Irish nationalism and even well the best example to give is walking around South Boston which was historically was considered a very Irish American area you have exactly the same kind of murals that you would see in West Belfast or, or, or the bog side that you have these murals celebrating the IRA's uh, um, armed, armed campaign and struggle so you can understand that there's this very basic affiliation there and that that, that ex helps explain why there was support uh, and a, a lot of uh, financial aid even through no raid and groups like that in Irish America that ended up funding the IRA but also then that you, you saw something very different on St. Patrick's Day, which was actually very educational to me. So I'm stressing this point that it's not just what you learn in the archives. I had no idea that St. Patrick's Day in Boston is equally a celebration of, of what's called Evacuation Day, that it's, it's, a, it's a, an important date in the American Revolutionary Calendar, and specifically Boston's role in that. It's, it's celebrating the, the withdrawal of, of British forces from, from Boston. So it's a combination of, of, of obviously, the St. Patrick's dimension, the Irish... Uh, affiliation there but it's also a celebration of american nationalism um, and even a kind of a more local nationalism boston's crucial role in the Re american revolution and you see that in the the um, the american football team the patriots it's even in that that they they really want to stress the key role of new england and boston in as they see it beginning the american revolution so you have this complex interaction of american and you, as it makes sense it's a hyphenate identity irish american identity but where that was quite striking for me is that what you would see in the St. Patrick's Day Parade is is huge military vehicles. You know, you'd see exactly the kind of armed vehicles and so on that you'd you would see in the context of the Iraq or Afghanistan wars. And where that that was quite shocking to me is I, I think that would be very unusual for people of West Belfast seeing that, where you have also murals during the those the Iraq and the Afghan uh, wars 
where there was very clear protest against American military power, uh, you, you know, and, and opposition to the war on terror and so forth, you know, reflecting that kind of left-leaning anti-imperialist discourse and mentality of, of, of republicanism in Northern Ireland. So you had that, that very different kind of aspect here. What, what would be very antithetical to republicanism here is, is crucially important to Irish Americans. There would be very, very many uh, uh, people would have, from South Boston and other areas would have, would have served in, in, in the American armed forces in, uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq and so on. So there's that much more layered nationalism that's going on there that, that yes, it's celebrating Irishness, but, but powerfully that there are American identity as well. So it shows you how, on the one hand, there's this there's misconception on, on either side of the Atlantic that there's, there's a sense of, of, of maybe nationalists and republicans here looking at irish american thinking well th th they're the same as us and that, that, that they're supportive of us and, and that that was seen during the troubles and indeed then it when it changed into support for peaceful methods in the peace process but that uh, they didn't un fully understand the complexity of, of the fact that, that irish americans are, are, are again exactly that they're americans too that they're going to be very proud of their their identity and their, their, their military power and the pride that comes with that Equally, it could be turned around the other way, that, that some felt that at times Irish America didn't understand Ireland and Northern Ireland. And that's why you had a lot of support for the IRA in the early days, where there was this conception of the conflict as being really essentially against the British state and anti-imperial, when it, in fact it had profoundly, as we know, profoundly sectarian dimensions. And a lot of the money that was going to Northern Ireland was ending up even from a nationalist point of view, killing fellow Irish people, as they would conceive, Eunice would obviously object to that label. But that point that it was it was funding a lot of sectarian violence as well. So it 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 would allow me to, being in Boston to fully understand those how there's there's a powerful affiliation there, but but there's there's great differences as well in terms of what's going on politically. And Peter, in terms of the peace process which you mentioned there and the ending of the Northern Ireland troubles. What's your scholarly judgment of how significant US actors actually were in helping bring the conflict to an end? You're involved, as I said, in the Mitchell Institute here at Queen's, which is named after Senator George Mitchell, who famously had a role in the peace process. But some people would see this as a decisive role that US actors and the Irish American community and others from the States played a really crucial role in bringing peace, whereas others would emphasize very much more the local factors. What's your scholarly judgment on that? Again, it's it's hard to overstate the role that I think America was was crucially important, and and we see that obviously in the role of, of George Mitchell and the Clinton administration, but it does go much further back, and it in a way it relates to what I've already mentioned there. That in the early days there was a very a kind of an instinctual gut reaction to to what was happening, and a lot of funding for Republicans. But that was gradually changed, and indeed by people like John Hume, particularly, and the Irish government working in, in cooperation with him to try and persuade particularly elite members, people like Tip O'Neill, who I've already mentioned, and uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, to speak out against the IRA, to encourage Irish Americans not to donate to, to, to groups whereby the money might well end up in Republican hands. And instead to try and work with the British government to a certain degree, to try and show that Irish America was not simply about this very uh, anglophobic uh, diaspora nationalism, but it wanted to try and help but oblige the British government to change its policies, but to work with it to try and end the violence. So really it begins that, that, that constructive role with people like Ted Kennedy and Tip O'Neill. And you can see that 
with the changing emphasis of even the Carter administration, the, the Reagan administration's role in, in helping put, put very uh, behind closed doors indirect pressure on the Thatcher administration to sign up to the Anglo-Irish Agreement. But it's obviously Clinton's role that's most celebrated and George Mitchell's quite rightly. I, I would nonetheless stress that we need to appreciate that they were both building on what went before, but also working in a very different geopolitical context with the end of the Cold War that for the first time you had a president who didn't have to be quite so concerned about offending British opinion. And probably the, the classic example of that is, is the, the very controversial visa that was given to Gerry Adams in 1994 before the IRA had a ceasefire. So if you can understand how, how upsetting that was to, to the British government. Adams was, was seen as a, as a spokesperson for terrorism, whatever he, he, he might respond to that. That's how he was seen by, by the British and by Eunice. So you can see, understand how this was uh, seen by victims of, of Republican violence. But the point of that quite radical and risky move to, to some degree was it was about trying to show Republicans what they could achieve if they committed to peaceful means. The visa was a temporary 48-hour visa with the, the implicit promise that if you uh, move Republicanism, Jerry Adams as a leader, towards a peaceful strategy, that you'll be able to gain continual access to the US and, and, and raise funds for, for political, exclusively democratic means to, to, to fund Sinn Féin and so on. So there was a, a huge role there in trying to help persuade Republicans that a peaceful way forward was crucial. That That's where then Clinton was very, very important in that. And of course, his visit to Northern Ireland, the huge investment that, that came with the peace process from America. And, and again, to stress Mitchell's role, you're, you're quite right to stress that why, why we have the Institute named after him here. An incredibly patient chair in that you have to remember that he, he was chair of the process whereby unionists and Sinn Féin still would not speak to each other. So Mitchell would... would would pretty much have to go into one room and say, OK, what's your proposals on this issue? To Sinn Féin, get one perspective and then do the reverse with, with Unionists. So he, he was trying to bring these two sides together when they still wouldn't actually speak directly to each other. So uh, incredible patience and skill in, in, in bringing about the Good Friday Agreement, as, as was Clinton's role, again, very important with those last minute phone calls. Um, at whatever time it was in America at the time, it was very, very early in the morning for us, phoning up directly Jerry Adams and David Trimble and asking them to go that, that extra mile in terms of the issues that were still outstanding. So it, it's, it's very hard to imagine that there would have been an agreement like the Good Friday Agreement, certainly not at that time. It, it, it's, it's, it's not overstating it to say that, that, that they brought, the American role brought peace a lot quicker to Northern Ireland. Um, it has to be related to other factors that were going on, the military stalemate and so on. But America was very, very important in facilitating change towards a peaceful agreement. And Cheryl, outside actors have had significant roles to play in other countries in dealing with contested pasts in divided societies, a subject which you've done original and powerful work on. In your scholarly view, should there now be a greater role for outside actors in Northern Ireland amid our ongoing disputes about what to do here with the legacies of the troubles, the legacies of the past? This is a question that comes up a lot. And, um, you know, as we've just been discussing, in relation to people like Senator George Mitchell and others, there has been international actors have had a huge input into the peace process in Northern Ireland, right across its different dimensions. Um, in respect to the question of, you know, should outside actors have a role in dealing with the past? I think there is a role there, but I think that role is subject to a few caveats. And I think, first of all, in turn, part of the debate around dealing with the past or part of the trajectory of the debate on dealing with the past has been to establish a 
formal bodies or groups of people who are tasked with going out and consulting and coming back with a set of proposals on what a Northern Ireland specific approach to the past would look like. And if you track that from 2009 to 2015, so from the work in the consultative group on the past in 2009, to the work of Richard Haas and Megan O'Sullivan in, in 2013, to the Stormont House Agreement in 2014, and then the Fresh Start Agreement in 2015, and then more recently, some of the proposals from um, the Conservative government. What you actually see is the detail being whittled out of those proposals. So the report of the consultative group in the past was over 100 pages long. By the time it got down to the Fresh Start Agreement, you're looking at just a couple of pages. And so the argument that if we brought an outside actor in, they could help us to deal with this question of how best to deal with the past by kind of somehow reinventing the wheel actually doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I think in many respects, and I know certainly from the different constituencies that I would work with, what we have in terms of proposals and models to deal with the past are as good as it's going to get. Um, But I think if we keep tinkering with that, then that actually opens up the space for some of the detail to be whittled out. And so some, there's, it also opens up the space for some of the more contentious or difficult aspects to be closed down. So I don't think that bringing in an international actor as someone to kind of redo that process will change anything. But also I think perhaps more fundamentally, dealing with the past is an issue that the parties to the conflict in Northern Ireland have to do. It's only them that can deal with their own issues and their own uh, unresolved questions. And people need to take ownership of that process. Those revelations about the past or that incursion into truth recovery, it might well be uncomfortable, it might leave feelings of shame, it may well be politically embarrassing. But an outside actor, if they're doing their job properly, they can't take that away from you. It's the people who are involved in the past, those who have their questions that want to who have questions that they want to ask and those who have the information in response to those questions, they are the people that need to take ownership of this process. And so I think with those caveats in mind, that said, if engaging an outside actor does promote confidence and trust, maybe, for example, in relation to the Stormont House Agreement, how the Historical Investigations Unit would work or how the Independent Commission on Information Retrieval would work, If that outside actor can promote confidence and trust, and that can be used to get the realisation of these mechanisms over the line, then that's a good thing. Um, And I think, you know, whether that is somebody from South Africa or whether it's someone from the ECCC in Cambodia, there's always something to be learnt from the technical and the practical experience of others. But fundamentally, the bottom line is we can't devolve our past. We have to own that past, and it's only the people who are most involved in that, that can actually deal with it. It's been a fascinating discussion. We've heard about original and powerful and thoughtful research from scholars who are working on undoubtedly major subjects. I hope that people who've been listening to this will go and follow up the work that Cheryl and Peter have been talking about. You can find details about that on their websites at Queen's University Belfast. But in closing this podcast, I'd just like to say a profound thank you to Dr. Cheryl Lawther and Dr. Peter Thank you very much. Please rate and review and share this podcast.